Chances are you have encountered somebody in the last few years that have had their catalytic converter stolen. We did last year and so did most Prius drivers in our neighborhood and it was absolutely a giant hassle. Thefts are so common that we couldn't get a replacement part for four months and it cost us around $3,000 in rental car fees while we were waiting for our car to get fixed. So I called our local politician who said that there really wasn't anything they could do. It was at the end of the legislative session, but maybe next year they could work on a bill that would increase criminal penalties for such thefts. Do you think that tougher laws and harsher sentences are going to make us safer and thieves less likely to steal my catalytic converter or yours? Progressive prosecutors don't. They have looked at the data and seen that tough on crime and incarceration driven policies don't actually make our communities safer and they cost so much money. Welcome to May It Displease the Court, a show about how the legal system is not working for us. I'm attorney Mary Whiteside. The U.S. incarcerates approximately 2 million people, which is 25% of the world's prison population. And that was mainly driven by state and local prosecutors who have tremendous power to set the criminal justice priorities for their localities. Prosecutors control who gets criminally charged and who doesn't, what crimes get priority and what crimes get ignored and how charges are dealt with in court, who gets plea bargains, and who gets access to rehabilitated diversion programs. The area is ripe for social justice reform. Justin Collar is a member of the progressive prosecutor movement. He was the district attorney in the county of Kauai in Hawaii for nine years. Then he left to work for a nonprofit, Fair and Just Prosecution, and he will be joining the PA's office of progressive prosecutor Pamela Price in Alameda County, California. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm excited to uh, be a part of it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and discussing this. Can you describe, in your own words, what is a progressive prosecutor and how do they differ from traditional DAs? Well, progressive prosecutors or reform-minded prosecutors are folks who basically have recognized what so many millions of other people in our country uh, already know, which is that our criminal legal system does not work for most people. It We call it a criminal legal system because what it provides for, for most folks who come into contact with it is uh, not justice in any way that we understand that term. Uh, we know that um, our current state of mass incarceration in this country, as you described earlier, you know, we lock up more people for longer amounts of time than any other country in the world. And uh, what does that get us? It's not made us safer. In fact, it's made us quite a bit more dangerous. We've created a whole class of folks in this country who have uh, lots of obstacles to obtaining work and housing because of their criminal histories. Uh, we've created a network, uh, an industry of prisons that exists um, to uh, make investors wealthy and, and uh, as jobs programs for, for state and local governments. Um, but there are not places where by and large rehabilitation happens or where healing happens or where growth happens. There are uh, places where we warehouse human beings who are not many of them dangerous uh, in their communities. We strip them from their support systems. We strip them from their communities 
and then we uh, kick them out uh, of, of their jail or the prison without any housing, without any jobs, without any skills, and say, good luck, don't come back here again. And that has, has led us to the current state of, of where we're at in the United States today, which is crime rates in, in many cities are still at historically low levels, although there are certainly concerning spikes in uh, certain violent crimes, uh, property crimes, as you described, catalytic converters and things like that. But what the prosecutors I talk to uh, have, have realized is that so much of what our system focuses on is not addressing those crimes that actually do affect, you know, our lives in, in those very concrete ways, like, you know, people stealing our possessions or people hurting us or hurting our friends or hurting our loved ones. But what, what our system spends so much time focusing on is things like prosecuting people who miss court dates because they can't get there or pe prosecuting people putting them in jail for driving without a license when we've you know spent the last 50 years in this country deliberately creating an infrastructure that requires people to use private cars to get to and from employment so what we call for is a return to a more sane and sensible and and reasonable a vision of a justice system, which is a justice system that is focused on fairness, that is focused on safety, that is focused on real safety for everyone in the community. And, you know, to do that, you know, it's going to take significant shrinking of the footprint of the criminal legal system. You know, many of our communities that are experiencing problems with crime are experiencing those problems because they've been uh, historically deprived of economic, environmental, and social justice. Uh, there are communities that have been, by and large, over-policed, uh, the victims of uh, racist and unconstitutional policing practices. And, and so what we see just isn't working. So we need to do better. And fortunately, there's a, a growing movement in this country to really look at that, uh, look at those shortcomings of our current system and say, you know, what are the ways we can use the immense power that prosecutors have, uh, the discretion, their, their status as the chief law enforcement officers for the counties or the jurisdictions they serve? How can they take their knowledge, their discretion, their power, and use that to create a system that actually helps people instead of hurting people? Yeah, I think it's really an amazing movement. And it's brought in prosecutors from all different walks of life. Some were prosecutors before, some switched over from the defense bar, switching to kind of change the the culture of the DA's office where I practice and where where I've practiced in upstate New York and Monroe County, it is not that way at all. It is absolutely regressive, tough on crime messaging and I think a lot of that comes with this extremely close relationship with the police departments and you know they they really run in tandem and while it's true that you know prosecutors need to work with police officers what's kind of struck me in all of this is that you know the prosecutors they have their own mandate to seek justice and it's really difficult when you have a prosecutor, you know, that instead, you know, if they look at a police officer who's violating constitutional rights or is or worse, you should have an obligation to seek justice, not just 
put forward whatever the police do and to prop that up or to hide it, to hide exculpatory evidence, police misconduct. Can you speak to how the progressive prosecutor movement interacts with police and is there tension now? Yeah, I mean, there's no reason that police and prosecutors need to be in tension in places that have chosen to elect reform-minded prosecutors to run their justice systems. You know, it's the prosecutor's mission, like you said, to seek justice. And that, to me, what I always used to tell my staff is that's the most beautiful job description in the world. Who else could who else could say that it's, you know, their job when they get up in the morning to just go out and do the right thing to the right person at the right time for the right reason? I mean, what a what a wonderful way to live. But, you know, the police have different jobs from prosecutors. Um, so sometimes, you know, the prosecutor's mission of seeking justice, sometimes what seeking justice means is for the prosecutor to do nothing, to not file a case, because filing a case is mm-hmm. not going to help anybody. In fact, it could make things worse for people uh, in any number of ways. And so, you know, there are many situations that may be called on um, where the law enforcement system may be called on to provide a response if there's a a situation in public somewhere or even in private that is dangerous or, or harmful and emergency response is needed. There may be a role for police to come and diffuse a situation or address a situation or or, um, handle whatever it is that's going on. But it doesn't necessarily follow that in every single one of those situations, the the right thing to happen is for the prosecutor to then file a criminal charge and and haul people into court for this process that can take years to or, or longer to really achieve any kind of result. Sometimes there's sometimes doing less is more. And you know, it allows prosecutors to kind of focus their resources on those cases where a real collaborative and and uh, close working relationship with the police is really going to benefit folks. Uh, you know, so many cities are experiencing these these unfortunate spikes in homicides, and there's you know no shortage of of ink spilled and and uh, I guess hours of cable television that are filled, you know, with these discussions about, you know, these big cities and the problems they're having and, the, you know, the, it's the prosecutor's fault or the DA's fault. Um, but what we don't talk about is that in so many of these places, the police do not make arrests in many of the, the homicides. The police, you know, they don't, if they don't close these cases out and send them to the district attorney, there's not much the district attorney can do about it. Right. The district attorneys are in the firing line, so to speak, of the public because they're elected officials. They have to go out and be in public and ask for votes and work to earn community trust and community support. And that can be leveraged in all kinds of political ways. But what we've done in this country since the early 1900s, at least, is to create this system whereby police don't have to do such things. You know, police chiefs don't have to run for elections in most places. Police are, you know, insulated for, through through collective bargaining agreements, through city charters, through state laws limiting liability, you know, insulated from any sort of accountability to the public when it comes to doing their jobs. And so, you know, we we see that in the present day dynamic where 
you know, we've been trained by by a century of of public uh, relations efforts uh, from from the law enforcement industry that the only way to respond to these things happening in our communities is to throw more and more and more money at at police and other law enforcement when it's demonstrably um, not making us safer. And so I always did my best when I was an elected prosecutor to maintain good relations with my with my police that I worked with. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Sometimes there was friction. Sometimes things worked very smoothly. But even if we have a philosophical approach as to whether a particular law should be amended or whether a particular crime is something we should be taking more or less seriously compared to other things we have to deal with in our work, you know, I think it's it's really it behooves everyone involved. We're all getting paid by the by the public, by the community, you know, and there's a reasonable expectation the community has that we're going to work together and do our best rather than squawking and squabbling and pointing fingers at one another, which I think is something we see happening in a lot of big cities these days, not so much on the DA side, but folks, like I said, these DAs become lightning rods because they challenge the status quo and because they're elected officials and because they're convenient targets for for a lot of that ire that would be better directed elsewhere. So, you know, at the at the I'm in Los Angeles, the LAPD has I think 45 full-time PR employees. I mean, that's a massive outfit. I, I bet there's many many celebrity <laughs> that don't have anything near, you know, agencies that don't have anywhere near that kind of PR support. So, I I think that's I see your point to that. I just saw a chart today about San Francisco police. And it was looking at the past uh, 2011 to to 2021. And their budget has gone up significantly. I think maybe 100 million it's gone up. And their clearance rate is under 10%. And it's gone down. So they've been getting more resources. And it's abysmally low. I mean, just incredibly low how their success rate in in crime clearance. And in the comments, I saw this on Twitter, they were blaming um, Chesa Boudin, who was a reform DA who was recalled in San Francisco, you know, who had been a prosecutor for 1.25 of the 10 years that they were looking at. And, you know, Vice President Harris was also a DA in this time period. It was ridiculous to me that they're blaming the reform, but also on brand, that they would blame this on the reform DA. So there's really this kind of coordinated pushback that I'm seeing. And and again, they tried to recall or they wanted to recall our progressive DA here in Los Angeles, George Gascon. And you see that across the country. So, uh, you know, who are the forces that are pushing back against this progress? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I mean, it's the same, you know, it's the usual suspects that have, have have always been entrenched and opposed to any sort of social justice in the United States. I mean, whether it's right-wing uh, media entities that, that try to pretend they're somehow uh, representing a minority viewpoint, like, you know, but they're really manifesting a, a mainstream viewpoint, which is an organization like Fox News. And then you've got you know, other media entities in in, uh, the journalism uh, area, you know, entities like the New York Times and others, which, you know, adhere to these rigorous journalistic 
ethos of 50 years ago and insist on talking about all sides of a particular argument as if they're exactly equivalent and and deserving of the same credulity and assumptions of good faith on the part of those making the arguments. But what we have is we have a narrative that we know works to get viewers or to get subscribers or to get uh, votes in particular places. And so and so we see people trying to exploit those, you know, those tropes and those those narratives about big cities being places that are lawless or people, you know, places that are chaotic or bastions of, you know, liberal failures or whatever. But, you know, if you look at a city like San Francisco, you know, they're still blaming things on Chesa that were, you know, happening in San Francisco 20 years before Chesa was the DA. And they're still happening now that Chesa is no longer the DA. He was the DA for three years. Now he's a private citizen who, who spends time with his family and is just a generally great guy, not responsible for any of the problems that afflict San Francisco, specifically, you know, areas of the city where You've got communities of individuals who have significant drug problems, you know, that are going to be really intractable in terms of the public health challenges that they present. Um, They're challenges that a law enforcement response is wholly unsuited to uh, address. But, you know, as long as opportunistic politicians, you know, need feel the need to deflect from their own failures at addressing these problems, you know, this is what's going to happen. I mean, people in the 1990s, I would come to visit San Francisco and there would be, you know, there were open air drug markets and people using drugs and on the streets. And it is certainly disheartening to see it when when I walk around the city. I live just across the bay over here in the East Bay. And yeah, it's it's disheartening to walk around the Tenderloin or or south of Market and and see folks shooting up on the streets or uh, you know urinating, defecating wherever or passed out in in doorways. And you know the citizens of these communities have a right to not want to experience that kind of behavior when they're on the streets. But the people who are caught in these cycles of of injustice and sickness and illness and and poverty. You know, they're victims of this system, too, and they also have a right to live in a safe and healthy community, which means having access to health care, which means having access to employment, which means having access to stable housing that isn't dangerous or decrepit or making sure that that we have those options available to the folks who need them. So that, you know, again, law enforcement, law enforcement can't can't cure somebody of of a fentanyl problem. And they're never going to be able to arrest every drug dealer who who is making money selling fentanyl in the tenderloin. You know, there there are always going to be folks willing to step up and take those jobs, so to speak, as long as there are not other opportunities for folks to to thrive in their communities. You know, um, if there's no jobs, if there's no housing, if there's no hope, why would we expect people to behave as if there's hope? Um, right. You know, we're not giving them any hope and then we're getting mad when they don't have hope. Well, also, I mean, you know, so the criminal justice system as a whole, I think getting talking about the drug, the rampant drug problem across the country is really important because I, I just I just deep dived into Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe on the Sacklers and the origins of the opioid crisis. And this incredibly wealthy family in this closed 
private corporation that just sucked out money out of it, paid themselves, then, you know, all of this money off of opioids. And instead of getting, they didn't, there was some, you know, prosecution of the corporation, not enough, frankly, They're, they were completely insulated personally when they were, as far as we know, were making very significant decisions driving all of this. And so the choice of who gets prosecuted and who doesn't get prosecuted. So these are people who have been allowed to be billionaires, have unleashed this scourge amongst other companies, but they you know, really got the ball rolling. This scourge across the entire country, which we are all paying for, but they don't have to pay for it. And that's a prosecution choice. And that was a choice also in the, the, you know, the way the bankruptcy court, that was a choice that the legal system made to insulate them and then to prosecute all of these victims, you know, because when they, they turned off the faucet of the pills, then the heroin and fentanyl came in to fill the gap of, you know, of product for addicts that were created in large part from these opioid pills. So that's the whole system. And so then we focus on them and we, and instead of looking, instead of, you know, and letting the big fish just swim away. And that's a real problem. You know, you, of course, you know, you're not the prosecutor in, in charge of that, but the, there was a prosecutor, prosecution, the DOJ, you know, really could have gone after that and they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you, I think you you nailed it right there. I mean, that's exactly true. Is that we've got a drug problem in this this country that was created by, in large part, by big pharma. Uh, we've got a war on drugs that was ginned up in the late 1960s as a way to oppress uh, poor people, leftists, black and brown people, and and the intersection of those two um, toxic developments is. Uh, what we see today playing itself out on on our streets is, you know, we had we had people who maybe had jobs were were functional, happy people. They got injured on the job. They went to the doctor. The doctor said, "Hey, take these. This is a miracle cure. It's going to make you feel great," and it worked. And people felt great. And then we said, "Oh, wait, this is bad," and cut them off. And I don't know if you've ever tried to kick an addiction to. Uh, uh, Oxycontin, but um, it's fairly uh, difficult to put it mildly, as I'm told. And then we put them in a situation where they were forced to turn to street drugs to um, just feel as if they're well enough to function. And uh, it's we trapped them in that vicious cycle that no amount of spending on on police uh, hiring bonuses, overtime, whatever. The the pro the problem is ongoing. Police are the last responders in these situations, and by the time folks are coming onto the radar screen of of a law enforcement agency, you know they've already got this horrible uh, series of problems in their lives that's preventing them from being able to get on track. And so, you know, no no punitive response is going to address that in any meaningful way. And you know, we we had an opportunity to hold some of these people to account and, and for for the harm they did in terms of the Sacklers and other pharma representatives that that got us into this problem, and we gave them a little slap on the wrist, and uh, you know, they went merrily on their way back to having you know museum wings named after them. So, 
I mean, if it was up to me, I would take all of their money. I would take it all. Get a job like the rest of us. And all of that money, all of it goes back to the communities. It's not enough, frankly. Taking all of their money would not be enough to repay the communities and individuals for and families that have been wrecked by all of this. But it's just outrageous to me that we just let them continue to have political influence and their fancy lifestyles. Meanwhile, you know, we are all paying the price. Taxpayers, of course, are paying the price. And there isn't enough rehab facilities. I mean, I kind of wanted to get at that, you know, in order for the progressive prosecutor movement to really work, there needs to be the social service support. I mean, all of the things that you're saying, I think actually run in tandem with what the defund the police movement, which was so vilified for the slogan, what they're also advocating for, which is to take the public resources and put them towards programs that work, job creation, health care, you know, mental health supports, drug rehab programs. It seems to be the same goal approached at from different angles. Would you agree with that? Or do you think it's slightly different? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we spend an inordinate amount of money in this country on things that have no demonstrated beneficial effect on our society. And, you know, we want them so desperately to be effective. We really want for uh, police to uh, be, be effective in their jobs. We want for, you know, everyone, we want for these systems to work. But they're just not going to work in the ways that we have currently constituted them. And it's, um, I don't know how that changes until we have a fundamental realignment of, you know, what we expect our justice system to look like. Um, and, you know, as long as we keep expecting it to look like this vision of of law and order, you know, or, or expecting policing to look like CSI, you know, which are both completely unhelpful and, and inaccurate representations of what happens in, in police departments and courtrooms. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to not learn from our mistakes and we're going to keep repeating the same errors. And that's a tragic thing because the, the cost in terms of human lives is incalculable. The cost in terms of of broken families and broken cities and broken systems and really a broken country is, um, you know, it's, it's avoidable. And there's still so much willingness and drive to, to turn things around and, and, and make a change that will be uh, so helpful to so many people, but we just keep choosing not to do it. Well, I think that data could play a real role in changing the community and the public perception because you know when we when you look at the numbers right look at the numbers of the San Francisco PD and their success rate i mean who is allowed to do that what companies are allowed to perform at that level you know you you would be fired things that you would be like well why are we throwing why why would throwing more money work we already threw more money at you and you got worse so, you know, this whole notion and Biden's all for that, you know, is, you know, it's like, let's throw more money, let's put more cops when the data shows shows differently. So how does data inform uh, the pro- progressive prosecutor movement in, in where where to 
you know, put resources generally. Data is an incredibly powerful tool that can be used by folks in the law enforcement system to drive decision making, to drive better decision making, and to really also give communities an understanding of what it is their age, their government is doing with their with their tax money. Uh, and I think it really is kind of the next great frontier in in how we change our criminal legal system is by making better use of that uh, criminal justice data that's out there, whether it's you know police data, uh, court data, prosecutor data. You know, there's historically um, law enforcement has been mostly a, a vibes based industry in terms of we have our narrative that we like, we're going to be tough, we're going to go out, we're going to crack heads, we're going to have all this CI Joe equipment that we walk around with, and that's how we're going to get things done. But it's entirely divorced, as, as we know, from reality. And so using those numbers to sort of establish what the reality is uh, and show how the things that we're doing right now are not working, I think, is incredibly critical. Now, historically, you know, court data has been very messy and difficult to work with. Police data has been very diff- you know, messy and difficult to work with. And same with prosecutors. I think in the last five or 10 years, we've seen prosecutors really make more of an effort to start Mm-hmm. you know, working with that data more, you know, whether it's creating, you know, data units inside their own offices when they have resources to do so. And we've seen folks like the DAs in Chicago, uh, you know, Kim Fox's office and Larry Krasner's office in Philadelphia, you know, and many others across the country that are starting to create these data dashboards where they can show their community, you know, what it is that is happening. This is how many Shootings happen in your community. This is how many get closed out by the police. This is what happens when they come to our office. This is how long it takes to turn it around and file charges. This is how long it takes for these cases to to go to trial, to go up on appeal, to come back. So that folks can really um, have an understanding beyond what is in the press release that's issued by the police department or the prosecutor and just get the information that will hopefully drive better decision making. So, you know, one of the exciting things that Fair and Just Prosecution did was bring on a data innovations director and really start laying the groundwork for a hub of folks who are the data leads and DA offices around the country to come together and share best practices and resources and ideas so that they can replicate these successes that we've seen other places and and be able to bring them back home and into their communities. And so hopefully we'll see the seeds of that effort begin to flourish. I think data data tells the story in in ways that you know politicians cannot, and so it's something that it really just makes all the sense in the world for it to be a, a bigger part of discussion. And hopefully, we'll see that. Yeah, I mean, the data married to good PR and accurate reporting in the media, because you know the New York Times often will only ask police sources or prosecutor sources and ignore the other side. And that's a very frustrating thing. Circling back to a point you made earlier, I don't know that the New York Times is actually uh, looking at all sides. I think that oftentimes they just put forward one side. We had uh, Alec Karakatsanis on on the podcast another time, and he spends a lot of time looking at the reporting and how one-sided it is. So you can check him out on Twitter. He does a great, great work on keeping up with that. I noticed in your bio that you, and you mentioned it also because we chatted uh, briefly, that you do uh, innocence project works. Yeah. 
And there is a lot of pushback by district attorney's offices around the country in looking at old cases and reissuing a missing discovery, things like that, looking at witnesses. Uh, they really pushed back on that. And, you know, all the way up to the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas is so focused on the process, the process, the process. Who cares if there's evidence of innocence? You know, we just want to keep the process clean and convictions, you know, upheld. So what is the, you know, again, getting back to the the mission of of a prosecutor to seek justice, you know, isn't going back and fixing past mistakes, isn't that the only thing in line with the mission to seek justice? That's exactly right. A prosecutor's duty to seek justice does not expire at the guilty verdict. It doesn't expire at the sentencing. It doesn't expire at a at a prosecution decline letter. It doesn't exp- it doesn't ever expire. A prosecution's duty to seek justice is not just prospective, it's retrospective. And so when facts come to light that indicate that a decision we made or an action we took as a prosecutor was wrong uh, or counter to the evidence or counter to the law, then it's our duty to rectify those errors. These are people's lives at stake. And so I don't know how I'd be able to sleep at night if something came up uh, for me that called into doubt something I had done previously and I didn't take prompt steps uh, in accordance with my ethical obligations to to remedy those mistakes. You know, we know, you know things come to light every day about prosecutions that were wrongfully initiated or convictions that were wrongfully obtained or that uh, confessions that were coerced or beaten out of folks or bribed out of witnesses. You know, so when when those things come up, I mean, how could we not take action? You know, prosecutors are trained to stop thinking about it once you get the guilty verdict. You know, you close the folder up, you say, done, I did a great job. Let's move on to the next one. Justice was served. Get, you know, feel good about wearing the white hat and all that stuff. But that's not reality. Reality is a lot messier than that. And we can't afford to live in a system that that is so uh, reductionist that that we only think about you know, getting a guilty verdict, saying justice served, and then, you know, dusting our hands and walking away. So, you know, prosecutors who care about justice care about wrongful convictions, care about Brady violations. Prosecutors who care about justice, who care about their communities, who care about the system being used against folks who are innocent, um, they welcome these efforts. When I was a prosecutor, you know, it was it was my job to accuse people of crimes and to try them when appropriate and, and to see that they were held accountable. And I did that, but not 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 for a moment would I have ever wanted to hide the ball in terms of evidence. I, I, I don't I truly don't understand the thinking of prosecutors who who resist those kinds of efforts to to find the truth in any given situation. I wonder, and I suspect that it's more about winning than it is about yeah. justice. You know, you want to win. Yeah. And I think that you the truth, win. I think yep. the truth of it is, you know, attorneys are competitive and they want to win. And, yep. and I think that that is what drives a lot of that, not even necessarily, you know, this lofty, uh, oh, it's about safety. I don't think so. I think it's about ego individually yep. and it's about winning. 
I think that's exactly right. No, and and I've met those prosecutors who who are hyper focused on the wrong things. Uh, whether it's a personal animus between them and a defense attorney they don't like, so they're gonna go really show this defense attorney who's the boss, or you know show this judge like who's the boss by playing games with the charges or the sentencing recommendations. By that you mean overcharging, right? Right. By overcharging, um, you know, these these other types of anti uh, justice tactics that we see happening in criminal courtrooms all around the country every day that are just inexcusable. Uh, You know, I once had a reporter approach me after a a not guilty verdict uh, happened. It was a very painful case uh, involving a young person who was disabled by a very serious car crash that was allegedly caused by a drunk driver. Um, you know, this this poor young person uh, suffered brain injuries, was not able to really recall what happened in the incident. You know, we worked really hard with the evidence that existed to to build a case and put an individual on trial. And at the end of the day, after a very lengthy and, and contested trial, the person was found not guilty. And this person, this reporter asked me if I thought it was a major loss for my office. And that notion that we're treating these things like they're football games uh, is just, to me, entirely misguided. It's not a game. There's no winners. There's no losers. Mm -hmm. If the system works, the system works. You know, in that case, we did what the system required. We did everything we could with the evidence that was available to hold the person who was guilty to account. And at the end of the day, the system said, nope, there has not been sufficient evidence to prove beyond reasonable doubt this individual is guilty of the crime they're charged with. And that's the way the system works. It's not a win. It's not a loss. If somebody's convicted, I don't uh, feel like I go mark one on the old scoreboard and, and, you know, I move up to first place in the standings. That's just a very counterproductive way to think about what this process is supposed to be, which is a means of finding the truth and and holding the guilty to account for uh, their crimes. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you work in the system, you realize that you can't really ever know exactly what happened. Nobody was there. People don't always tell the truth and you do the best you can to try to figure it out. But you can't always figure it out, you know, and. I had situations I had clients I thought were guilty. I was like, they are guilty. You know, obviously I don't act that way in court. Send an investigator out. They do an investigation, find out. No, they weren't. So it's like, I can't even, I can't even peg it no matter what. You just, it's very difficult to tell. It just, it just is. It is. We all have our personal biases. We all have our pre, pre pre-existing beliefs about various situations or behaviors or, you know, you, you think, you know, how you would act in a particular situation or how a normal person or a reasonable person would act in a particular situation. And, um, you know, so much of that is informed by our upbringing and our values and, uh, our, uh, you know, the, the things we look to as, you know, being the truth or, or indicators of veracity. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is highly subjective. We know that even eyewitness identifications are inherently unreliable and, and yeah. huge percentages of cases. We know that that trauma affects people uh, differently in terms of their memory, in terms of their recollection of, of events. And so it's really important, I should say, when you're a prosecutor to be careful about 
the way you bring those biases to your work and making sure you you build safeguards into the process so that you're not helping to perpetuate these uh, systematic biases that our system has had for so many years against poor communities, against marginalized communities, against folks who are poor, black or brown or or gay or uh, trans or you know whoever the villain of the day is for right wing. Uh, narratives that are out there Mm -hmm. and, you know, make sure that we're making our decisions based on facts, evidence, law, and and our sense of justice. Yeah. And I think it's, I think all of that's really important because, you know, they, people get uh, abused in the system, you know, and they get, they get viewed in a certain way. Trans people are very much at risk in the system where they get placed when I was in law school way back in early 2000s, uh, we visited Attica, which is our maximum security prison in upstate New York, New York. very famous yeah. prison for terrible conditions uh, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we were standing there, a trans inmate walked by and the corrections officer joked that they're made porters in the prison to provide uh, stress relief for the prison population. One of the most horrific things I've ever heard admitted, it was astounding. I mean, this was a prisoner law class. It was a prisoner rights class. And that was, they were just uh, kind of proud about it, uh, the corrections officers. And, you know, so we have to be aware of, of what it means to send somebody to prison there's a lot of abuse that goes on there. And some people think that that's right and that's, that is, that's okay, that that is part of the punishment, but it isn't actually. Not, it's not supposed to be, you know, according to our constitution. Yeah, that's, I mean, and that's what a ghastly thing for a person to say who claims to be working in a facility that's supposed to be helping people. It's supposed to be. And we know that that is how it is everywhere. Uh, and yet we continue to pretend as if these facilities serve some kind of salutary purpose when we know that they almost never do. Just curious, have you ever seen the documentary, um, The Painter and the Thief? It's a foreign documentary. I haven't. No? Anyway, you should check it out. It's about a painter who had her painting stolen, and she went to try to find, she tried to figure out who did it. It turns out it was a, a drug addict. And they kind of became friends. It was it's a really interesting look at, uh, I think they were in Norway. This is a Scandinavian country. But he ended up going to prison for, I think, a year. And then you get to see him come out afterwards. And it was really about their relationship. It wasn't about the prison system. But I got to see what a rehabilitative prison system looks like. And this was a person who had a lengthy criminal history. And if we, if he had been my client in New York, he would have had an incredibly long sentence, probably somewhere close to 15 to 20 years based on his record for the crime. No rehabilitation really offered. And the change in him, in his life, you know, and he got out, got a job, got married. It was really amazing to see what we could do. And I know that he would have been thrown away in our system based on his history, you know, where some people are really ready to change uh, by the time they hit their late 30s and 40s. And our system just throws those people away when that's where they're tired. They're really tired at that point. And it's a real shame. Yeah. Yeah, it is. We know we know that most people age out of crime. We know that people who get in trouble as, as young people 
you know, eventually decide for any number of reasons to start making different decisions. We know that people over the age of 60 almost never commit crimes, yet we take people who who did bad things, and some people do very bad things, no, no doubt about that, when they're 20, and then you know, lock them up into their 70s and 80s until until their death at, at great cost to uh, our, our country and uh, little, um, no benefit to, to anyone to keep folks uh, locked up who's, who pose no threat uh, to, to the safety or well-being of folks around them. And it's, it's pure punishment. It's unconstitutional and it's incredibly uh, just harmful and expensive. Very, yeah, all of the things, all of the bad things. All the things. (laughs) All the things. (laughs) Okay, just my last question is, in New York, we are uh, negotiating the budget. And in that is uh, they're trying to to get at bail reform and also to roll back these progressive discovery requirements that they required the, the prosecutors to give the discovery much earlier. It used to be a situation where prosecutors could wait until essentially right before trial eve of trial to turn over discovery. Meanwhile, all this plea bargaining and all this stuff has been going on. People have pled out and the defense attorneys are completely hamstrung and they want to roll back really to that situation. This is a push from supposedly progressive DAs in New York City. The Bronx DA has been reported as being one of those people. I mean, is that in any way a progressive prosecutor tactic? Why wouldn't getting discovery to defense be, again, just seeking justice. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's it's anti-justice in general to suggest that you should be able to resolve a criminal case without the benefit of the other side having seen any discovery. I mean, that's preposterous. Uh, it, It never would have flown in any jurisdiction I ever practiced in, which, you know, I've never practiced in New York. And I understand that the discovery reforms that happened a few years ago may have presented quite a logistical burden to to line prosecutors or prosecutors offices you know i'm i'm not intimately familiar with every detail of that if the problem is we're too busy to provide discovery then my my answer to that is to is do less then then do fewer cases so you can provide discovery focus on the things that are important to your communities rather than just churning human bodies through this grist mill of a system you've created. And, you know, remember that your oath is to seek justice and your obligation is to seek justice and how you can expect to get justice in a courtroom when one side is blindfolded is uh, just absurd. So, and it's just, and it's of course endlessly depressing to see Democrats attempting to outflank Republicans on these issues, you know, uh, it's it's been this thing that Democrats have felt this obligation to do since the 1970s: prove prove we're tougher than, uh, you know, Republicans or whatever, and and it never works. It's cynical. It's it's dumb. It, it's counterproductive. Again, tremendous uh, amount of human cost. Uh, and it's done for the sake of political posturing and, and not for the sake of justice, which is, um, you know, obviously what what we should all be thinking about when we walk through those those courtroom doors. And so, you know, if there are, are tweaks that need to be made to address the logistical problems or, or deadlines that need to be adjusted to make um, make it possible for the 
you know, hand over to happen in a more timely or more reasonable or more fair way than, okay, you know, make, make tweaks to your system. That happens. You pass a law, sometimes there's unintended consequences that you need to address later. But it doesn't mean you throw out the very idea of being fair or just or, or uh, you know, we don't get to ignore people's constitutional rights because it's inconvenient to us. It's just antithetical to what we're supposed to be about as a country. Well, and also during in budget, you know, you can just request more money to hire more staff. Yeah. Ask for more money to get it out. I mean, that's instead of saying, hey, we'll save you money. Just, you know, throw away constitutional rights. That seems to be what they are intending to do in New York. So we'll see. Hopefully not. Um, it's it's coming soon. Yep. Well, thank you so much for your time, Justin. I, I you. you know, have become quite a fan of this movement. So uh, I wish you all the luck with Pamela Price in Alameda County. And I'm, I'm sure you guys will be doing great things there. Yeah. And just to be clear, I don't speak on behalf of any employer. Uh, I don't speak on behalf of FJP. I don't speak on behalf of Alameda County District Attorneys, uh, anything like that. I'm just here talking based on my own experiences and, and my own thoughts about these things. Absolutely. And we will include that in the show notes just to make sure everybody's clear. All right. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks so much. This episode is written and produced by me, Mary Whiteside, mixing and mastering by Joe Thompson, social media by Jen Nicholson. You can find the podcast on Twitter at CourtPod. Find us at May It Displease the Court on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and you could drop us an email at mayitdispleasethecourt at gmail.com. We would love you to rate and review the show as it helps others find the program. Theme music is Poor Man's Pain by Daniel Ponder. She's a former public defender. The song is about Willie Simmons, a black man sentenced to life in prison in 1992 for stealing just $9. Check out the show notes to learn more. Hit the crime, pay more than-